From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is in the starting blocks ready to go. If you've got a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, sitting in for Michael McCall today, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and I guess Charles is probably doubling up on social media efforts as well. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? Doing great, Jack. Thank you so much. So you're, are you saying that our normal team of four that helped me get through this hour in such a great way each week are actually a team of three this week? Yeah, and only two of them are normally here. So <laughs> okay, there you go. Right. <laughs> You'll get, it'll, it'll be all right. You'll get we'll we'll it. get through it. <laughs> hey, listen, um, before we get into all this gossip that you want to talk about today, yeah, that's and, right. uh, literally, you, I hope you have your confessor ready when you're finished, but uh, it is the Feast of St. Josephine Bakita. Uh, Johnette and I have a granddaughter who is named for her patronage, and um, you know she is the patron saint of human trafficking, and or, or, or you know against human trafficking. I guess would be a better way uh, to sure. say that. And I just wanted to t- just take one second here at the top of the program uh, to encourage everybody. You know, this is somewhat a uh, kind of a nebulous term, I think, for a lot of people. And I just wanted to to throw out a practical. Uh, illustration for you. So if you're if you're someone who's listening who may be thinking, well, <clears throat> of course everybody's against human trafficking and I don't participate in human trafficking, so what do I have to worry about? Well, listen, if you in any way, shape, or form uh, consume pornography uh, or uh, are engaged in any sort of, uh, of, of, of prostitution or anything like that, then you are engaging in and supporting human trafficking. So that may be some way to look at it that might push somebody over the edge to, to get out of that sort of habit or that sort of behavior. Mm. Because the fact of the matter is, the girls that are involved in this and the, and the men that are involved in this, quite frankly, who are uh, being uh, exploited uh, to the nth degree are, are, are not wanting of being in that position. And uh, oftentimes, most times, I would venture to guess, are they're against their will, and it is only facilitated by customers. So don't be a customer. That's right, Jack. St. Josephine Bakita, 
a former slave canonized by St. John Paul II. She's invoked as the patroness uh, against human uh, trafficking as a, as a moneymaker. Thank you for a, bailing me out there on the terminology. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, some 600 to 800,000 people are enslaved each year to human trafficking, 70% of which are women and young girls. Those are the latest statistics. Um, it's interesting that that St. Paquita, St. Josephine Paquita once wrote this. She admitted that out of all the torments she ever, ever endured as a slave, such as the physical beatings, the cutting and the branding, and the verbal and the psychological abuse, the absolute worst was having to stand nude on an auctioneer's sales block as a slave, as slave owners uh, place their bids on her. You know, something innate uh, to the very core of the nature of being in the human person shrinks from such horror as St. Josephine Bakita describes here. And the truth that each and every human person is made in, in the image and likeness of God shines through in, in that testimony of St. Josephine's, uh, despite what a horrific statement it really is about. But, it, but, but, but the beauty of the dignity of the human person shines through that. So she's just a, a tremendous intercessor for this terrible, terrible field of, of human trafficking, which is one of the areas that I mention as um, one of the elements of the culture of death, uh, 20, 20 years plus into this third millennium, huh? Uh, a a multi-million dollar industry where pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, but they merge like you intimated in your opening comments. So St. Josephine Paquita, pray for us, huh? As, as uh, she's the patroness uh, against such, such evil. Amen. I want to talk today, Jack, about detraction and calumny and slander and gossip. Four big words in, in the mode of human uh, conversation and, and the human tongue. You know, St. James tells us a lot uh, about the human tongue and how powerful it is. And why am I talking about this this week? Well, Lent's just a month away. You know, uh, March 2nd, that first Wednesday of March, is Ash Wednesday to kick off Lent 2022 this year. So now's the time, a month leading up to Lent, to think about some of the things we want to take on and give up for Lent as our Lenten practices. And I like to tell people, just as we pray or we hear the phrase, custody of the eyes, we should pray for a custody of the tongue, huh? So I want to talk about the, these four big words that we seem to hear a lot in Catholic moral theology and just exactly what they are. And when we come back from the break, I'll, I'll finish up the topic a little bit here. But detraction is revealing something about another that is true, but harmful to that person's reputation. So detraction has to do with that which is true, but is still harmful to the person's reputation. It is forbidden to reveal another person's secret faults or defects unless there is proportionate good reason involved. The fact that something is true does not of itself justify its disclosure to another or to others. Detraction is a sin against the virtue of justice. It robs one of what most people consider more important than riches, since a person has a strict right to his or her reputation, whether it is deserved or not. And Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2477, states, quote, he becomes guilty of detraction, who without an objectively valid reason discloses another's faults and failings to persons who did not know them. Uh, so that, that's an important point there. Calumny is injuring another person's good name by lying or telling falsehoods about them. In other words, calumny has to do with that which is false. It is doubly sinful in that it unjustly deprives another of his good name and in telling an untruth about them. Since calumny violates justice, it involves the duty of making reparation for the foreseen injury inflicted. Hence, the calumniator must try not only to repair the harm done to another's good name, 
but also to make up for any uh, foreseen temporal loss that resulted from the colony in the first place. For example, uh, loss of employment or loss of customers. And again, Catechism number 2477 states, quote, he becomes guilty of calumny who, by remarks contrary to the truth, harms the reputation of others and gives occasion for false judgments concerning them. And so that's, that's an important thing to remember there. Calumny has to do with falsehoods. Detraction has to do with the truth, but doesn't have a right to be shared. Uh, side note, number 2479 of the Catechism, detraction and calumny destroy the reputation and honor of one's neighbor. Honor is the social witness given to human dignity, and everyone enjoys a natural right to the honor of his or her good name and reputation and to respect. Thus, detraction and calumny often offend against the virtues of justice and charity. Uh, Another point here that's worth mentioning is one about slander. Slander can be a part of either detraction, which again concerns that which is true, or of calumny, which again concerns that which is false. Uh, Slander can be spoken or written and essentially involves defamation of a person's character to the point that it causes suffering and positive harm. So that's how slander is set apart, even though slander can also be a part of either calumny or detraction. It causes suffering and a positive harm on top of the calumny, on top of the detraction. And gossip is defined as idle talk, especially about others. The morality of gossip can vary as it is determined by the degree to which time is wasted in useless conversation, by the failure in the virtue of justice or in the virtue of charity committed against others who are being talked about or situations being talked about, and by the damage done to a person's reputation by those who gossip. Okay, so it can be venial or mortal, right? So again, as as we approach Lent just one month away, uh, it's important to think about some things we want to take on positively or things we want to give up, in other words, negatively, uh, uh, whether giving up a favorite food, but how about taking on something positive, like taking on a greater awareness of the uh, custody of the tongue, the custody of words. You know, this whole area, Jack, uh, regarding the tongue, it deals with spouses, It deals with family. It deals with friends. Uh, Custody of the tongue and and of words and regarding the tongue deals with uh, when conducting business uh, just once or twice with a person or with a regular co-worker. It goes on and on, and I'll finish up this list when we come back. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You heard the man. Pick up the phone, 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Wings is EWTN's weekly e-newsletter. You can find out about EWTN radio and television shows, items from religious catalog, and a whole lot more. You can sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and look for the subscribe button. 
Uh, again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're talking detraction, calumny, slander, and gossip. Oh, my. Just happy little topics, Jack. <laughs> yeah, and you know, regarding the tongue, I was saying this can deal with one spouse, that can deal with family, this deals with friends, this deals with coworkers that you see on a regular continuum, uh, this deals with conducting business with others that you may only see once or twice for a special work project, uh, when recreating or partaking in a leisure activity with others, uh, we got to be careful of the tongue, huh? How about in our cyber relationships? This is a huge one, Jack. Like when adding comment to an internet news story that we uh, disagree with or something. Comments can be cutting, they can be snide, they can be derogatory or mocking or even insulting. Uh, they can be disparaging, and they can even be contemptuous, right? Uh, James 3, verse 6 says regarding the tongue, quote, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It can corrupt the whole body. It can set the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell if used pridefully or incorrectly, huh? And James 1, verses 19 and 26 says, Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If a man who does not control his tongue imagines that he is devout, he is self-deceived, and his worship is pointless. So just some points about the tongue. And, and, and the Proverbs, by the way, the book of Proverbs is filled with uh, little uh, snippets about the tongue. Huh? Uh, for example, Proverbs 18.21 and Proverbs 13.3, just to name a couple. Uh, I've come up with a couple of categories here, Jack, about positives and negatives in speech. According to my records, the last time I shared these was back on Open Line Tuesday in 2018. So I thought with Lint coming up, now in 2022, it'd be nice to share these again. But in regards to speech, two little columns of negatives in speech and positives in speech. So under negatives in speech, I have down anger in speech, rash judgment in speech, bad moods or bad tones in speech, profanity in speech, huh? cursing or using the Lord's name specifically in speech, obscenity in speech, complaints in speech, uh, gossip in speech. How about a prideful self-praise in speech? How about unkind witticisms in speech or dirty jokes in speech? How about murmuring whispers or nods or signs in speech and being argumentative in speech? But the good news is there's positives in speech. Huh? We have charity in speech. We have humility in speech. We have honesty in speech. Courtesy in speech. And Jack, let us not forget, sometimes we're called to have a noble silence in speech. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Huh? Psalm 52, verses 5 and 6 says, You love evil more than good. You love lies more than truth. You love the destructive word. Oh, you master of deceit, you tongue of deceit. And St. Augustine tells us, like just only St. Augustine can tell us, Jack, he says, quote, there are men who rashly judge, men who slander, who whisper, and who murmur, and who are eager to suspect things they do not even see, and eager to spread abroad things they do not even have a real suspicion of, yet they do it anyway. Um, so that ties in great, I think, with Psalm 52, verses 5 and 6 about that master tongue of deceit. And speaking of murmuring, which Webster's defines, Jack, as a subdued or private expression of discontent or satisfaction, which could be valid or invalid, but even if it's valid, you want to be careful not to murmur behind the back of the person whom you should be addressing face-to-face -face in charity— 
Our Lord tells St. Faustina, which she records in her diary, number 1760, shun murmurers like the plague, my daughter. That's number 1760. Shun murmurers like a, like a plague. Let all act as they like, but you, my daughter, are to act as I want you to act. So what a lesson from our Lord himself to St. Faustina. And St. Faustina tells us this in number 690 of her diary. This is her speaking now, her writing. She says this, quote, On one occasion I came to know of the condition of two religious sisters who were both grumbling interiorly about an order that Mother Superior had given them both. And for this reason, God had withheld many special graces from them both, actual graces. Oh, how my heart ached at this sight. How sad it is, O Jesus, when we ourselves are the cause of the loss of so many graces. Whoever understands this always strives to be faithful. And she also says this in number 226 of her diary. She says, I will avoid sisters who grumble. And if they cannot be avoided, I will at least keep silent before them, not taking part in the grumbling myself, thus letting them know how sorry I am to hear such things. And lastly, from St. Faustina, Jack, this kind of sums up the whole topic on the need for custody of the tongue par excellence, I might add. It's Faustina talking about how her tongue is the throne for the most holy Eucharist and holy communion, huh? Whether one receives on the hands very reverently with a true Eucharistic throne with both palms open, one over, over the other, then to self-communicate on the tongue directly, or whether one receives very reverently on the tongue directly, the church permits both, regardless, it ends up on the person's tongue, the most holy body, blood, soul, and divinity, and the consecrated host in the host of holy communion, right? It ends up on the person's tongue. Listen to these words from Faustina. She says, quote, when I receive Jesus in Holy Communion, I ask him fervently to deign to heal my tongue so that I would offend neither God nor neighbor by it any longer. I want my tongue to praise God without cease. How beautiful is that? And then she adds, oh, how great are the faults committed by the tongue. The soul will not attain sanctity if it does not keep watch over its tongue. So just a, a little reminder with Lent coming up, maybe this is something positive you want to take on. You want to pray for custody of speech, custody of words, custody of the tongue. Uh, not unlike how we pray for custody of the eyes each day, for example, in our morning offering, right? And so we want to be able to uh, be able to, to uh, have our speech be edifying, our words be edifying. Uh, there's other ways that you can do this during Lent. Um, how about uh, taking on the task of, of a certain number, maybe three to five things each day you want to compliment sincerely on? Not, not fake uh, compliments or false flattery, no, but something you want to look for diligently good each day in. Uh, look for the good in each day, I should say, uh, and, and commit yourself to three to five compliments each day that are sincere not false or fake or anything like that, or, or, or uh, undue flattery, but, but they are sincere. Um, also, we can read the lives of the saints and what the saints had to say about speech. I love these lives of the saints books, Jack, um, that are broken down by categories, so maybe speech might be one of the categories. And Paul Thigpen has um, a great book on the saints uh, where he breaks it down into category. I'll look up the title here in a moment, uh, where, where speech is one of those. And you have a whole host of saints quoting on speech and efficacious words, huh? So how awesome is that?
Well, I'm holding it up right now. It's called A Dictionary of Quotes from the Saints. <laughs> How's that, right? Uh, by Paul Thigpen, and that's available from EW10RC.com. So it's broken down by categories. So uh, what did the saints say about speech? What did, what did the saints say about the tongue, etc.? things like that? So just some practices we can take on for Lent. You know, I think of the prayers, the, the devotion of the prayers to St. Bridget of Sweden, mm. uh, the prayers of St. Bridget of Sweden, and in the conclusion of those 15 prayers, there's a little concluding prayer, and part of that says, may my conversation be pleasing to you. Amen. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice summation, isn't it? And, you know, St. Francis de Sales says something kind of similar. He, he gives both ballparks. He says this, remain at peace whatever is said or done in conversations each day by you, for if it was good conversation then you indeed have something for which to praise God and offer back to him. But if it was bad conversation, you have something in which to serve God by turning your heart away from it. That's just great. You know, we kind of, how, how is it, Jack, that the saints can give us like volumes of doctrine in one sentence? Why can't I do that? You know? <laughs> it's awesome. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. First up today is Velma in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Velma, have you dug out from the snow? Velma, are you there? Velma may be under the snow. Let's, I was going to say, maybe, back she, to, <laughs> maybe she's not doing too yeah, good with the let's snow. Come, let's put Velma on hold, and we'll come back to her. Instead, we'll try Diane in the great state of Delaware. Uh, she is listening on the EWTN app. Diane, you're on with Father Wade. Father Wade? Yes, go Hello? ahead, Diane. Thank you for your, for your call from Delaware. One of the states I have yet to preach in. There's six states I have not preached in as a Father of Mercy. Well, Delaware is one of them, Diane, so maybe you should talk to your pastor about having a Fathers of Mercy parish mission. <laughs> I will definitely do that, Father. I would love to have you down here. I'm, 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 I'm really, uh, I, I just, it was so weird. I've been so worried and upset. And I just turned your thing on, and I heard that detraction. I never heard of it before. And anyway, I had a conversation with my sister. She's younger than me the other day. And uh, we were just talking. We talk every day, you know, and, and I dearly love her. But uh, she's been through a lot. She's been divorced and hurt, and her husband cheated on her and all this stuff. So I know she has trust issues, but uh, She's talking to me, and she's saying to me that what I was telling her wasn't right, and I was lying. And, and I said, no, I'm not. And she said, well, I know you are. And she says, and I record everything you say every, every time we talk. And I said, do you record what we talk about? And and I said, I said that is an invasion of privacy. I said, turn that off right now. And so she said she did. But I now I don't trust her. So I told my other yeah. two sisters, because we talked to her often, and I told my husband, and I told my son, because I, I needed to talk to somebody about it. So am I sinning because I told my closest members that are to me, you know? Well, remember, detraction, is, which is what you're specifically talking about, as you rightly mentioned at the beginning of your statement here and question about your sister, is revealing something about another person that is true but harmful to that person's reputation. It is forbidden to reveal another person's secret faults or defects that are true unless there is a proportionate good involved. Now, I want to make it clear, Diane, that I am not a clinician. I'm not a li I am not a licensed cl clinician in any way, shape, or form. 
But as a moralist, as a Catholic priest who hears confessions and gives spiritual directions, I, spiritual direction, I can tell you that if your sister is telling you the truth, that she records you, quote, every time the two of you talk, that is a type of paranoia on her part. And uh, you are doing well, in my opinion, in sharing this truthful matter with your other two sisters and with your husband to hopefully get your sister some help. But you want to do it charitably and lovingly. Thank you for your call and your question. 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still have some open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls on Open Line Tuesday. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're talking to Diane in the great state of Delaware, and Diane's touching on kind of a nuance to the whole yeah. idea of detraction, huh, Father Wade? Yeah, that's right. She She's concerned that she indeed wants to share this with her husband and her other two sisters in case this third sister who records her every conversation with Diane for whatever reason, uh, Diane feels she needs to share it with the other two sisters and her husband in case this other sister does the same thing with them. And I think that that it would be correct in a very charitable, loving way to share it with her husband and the other two sisters, because there could be something involving the other sister here that's leaning towards a type of paranoia that she feels she needs to record everything. Um, and and it could be that the sister needs assistance. And the the husband and the other two sisters can help bring balance into the situation and talking it out and thinking it out. And it needs to be done very charitably and very lovingly, but I think it would be a good thing to share uh, with the others in this case, because we care about the psychological health of the person involved. So great question, Diane. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Um, we have an email here from Claire, uh, from Charlene, rather. Uh, it's actually from Charlene and her uh, fiancé, Andrew. Um, says, Hi, Father Wade. My fiancé and I are planning for our wedding the weekend before Valentine's Day. Um, that's coming up this weekend. Or that was last weekend. Well, no, it's this weekend. It's the weekend before yeah. Valentine's Day. Yep. We would dearly love to consecrate the wedding to Jesus through Our Lady. Do you know of a suitable consecration prayer or formula we could use? Well, Jack, I think this is a great witness uh, time for you, Jack, to share what you and Johnette did at your wedding, and I, I was the celebrant at your wedding in Florida um, a few years back, but, but uh, what you did, of course, involved the 33-day consecration with the 33rd day being the day before the wedding or the day of the wedding day, itself? The day before the wedding. Finished, day before the yeah, wedding, that's what I thought. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you you prayed the, the consecration prayer, the, the closing prayer of the 33 days on the day of the wedding, which was, as you just said, the, the, the 34th day, if you will, the day of the wedding. But talk about that a little bit, Jack. Yeah, that's a great, great thing to yeah, witness we had, to. Yeah, we had both uh, had been consecrated to Jesus through Mary, uh, 
using the De Montfort consecration. We've, we also had each have done in the past the uh, 33 Days to Morning Glory from Father Michael Gately, which has some different elements to it, but we're, mm-hmm. we're De Montfort people at heart for sure. And while you can't do the 33-day preparation and finish before the weekend before Valentine's Day, which is just in a couple of days here, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong. We, uh, John Ed and I, as part of our morning offering as a couple together, renew our uh, consecration to Jesus through Mary every morning by reciting the same prayer that we recited at our wedding that you recite on the, the at the conclusion of the 33-day preparation. So, you yeah. know, if you go to True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort, you can find the prayer there. You can write your own prayer. Uh, you can do whatever you want, but but that would certainly be acceptable, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can find any consecration prayer, for example, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, just in general. Um, that could be done, too, if you and your fiancé did not do the 33-day preparation as Johnette and Jack did. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, and there's an appropriate place for it uh, in, in the Mass, uh, given the wedding traditions here in the United States. For example, here there's a, a custom of over 25 years that um, after the communion rite, but before the final blessing of the bride and groom and the final sending of the congregation, the bride and groom often go visit the Blessed Virgin Mary statue or side altar, and it could be done then when you take the flowers to our Blessed Lady's altar during, say, the plane of the Ave Maria, and then when the Ave Maria is completed, uh, you can recite aloud uh, via microphone so everybody can hear the beauty, the beauty and the beautiful reality of this. Pray your consecration prayer as well, or you can do it vice versa. You might want to do the, the prayer out loud first of consecration, followed by the Ave Maria. Maybe do the prayer of consecration at the foot of the altar, then when the prayer of consecration is done, then get up during the Ave Maria, uh, ch- chanted in the Latin or, or sung in the Latin, then go in procession during the, the Ave Maria to take the flowers to Our Lady's statue or altar. So there's different ways you can do it, but it would be done after the communion rite, but, the fi- but before the final blessing of the bride and groom and before the sending of the congregation, the final sending of the congregation. So great, great question, and God bless both of you this coming weekend on your wedding day. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sam is in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Sam, you are on with Father Wade. Good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon, Jack. My hey, question, Sam. Father Wade, my question is, um, I'm 59. My father passed away just before I was 12. How long do we know to pray for somebody in purgatory? Okay, great question. Uh, the I can, easy answer, I can is, answer that one. Go ahead. Until you die or the Church pronounces him a saint. Yeah, te- technically that is correct. Technically that is correct. I, w- I would answer, in addition to what Jack just said, this. It's not so much, Sam, about praying for a specific soul in purgatory per se— it's a more of a question of just praying for the faithful departed. And if they need your prayers, they will go to that person. If they don't need your prayers, the prayers are applied to persons who do need them in purgatory. Because as the Church Fathers tell us so beautifully, if they are in heaven, they don't need our prayers. In fact, we need their prayers as members of the Church Triumphant in heaven. Uh, But if they're in purgatory, they do need our prayers. And I might add, if we are praying for them, then their intercessory power is more effective for us as a member of the Church suffering in purgatory. So your dad died when you were 12, you said. 
you pray for him often, if not daily. How often should you pray for him as a soul in purgatory? Don't pray for him as a soul in purgatory. Pray for him as a member of the faithful departed, and the soul and the prayers go to him accordingly. Now, you can pray for all the souls in purgatory as a collective group, uh, with or without thinking about your dad. Just pray for the holy souls in purgatory per se. Uh, we don't know who's in purgatory. We don't know who's in heaven. We don't know who's in hell. Um, also, uh, frequently offer partial indulgences and plenary indulgences for the blessed repose of your father's soul. That'll bring you great peace to where you just pray for him, and maybe you'll be asking him for prayers, just with, and that will bring you great peace. Uh, regardless, d- don't focus so much on individual names, individual persons in purgatory. Just pray for the holy souls in purgatory. And then when you do pray for the person by name, just pray for the blessed repose of their soul, wherever that is. If it's in purgatory, may they have comfort there to alleviate their suffering. If they're in heaven, uh, they technically don't need your prayers there, but you can still be thanking God through prayer for the blessed repose in heaven of their soul. Great question, Sam. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN. Kind of a related question, not not entirely, but uh, Bob in Jacksonville, Florida, I just wanted to take this one email because it caught my sure. eye. A dear friend, non-Catholic, has requested I spread his ashes after his death. I know it's improper when the deceased is Catholic. Is it allowed for a Catholic to participate when the deceased is non-Catholic? It would be improper. The Church isn't against uh, the spreading of ashes just for Catholic persons. Uh, The Church is against the spreading of ashes for all persons, even non-Christians, especially if their particular faith, Christian or not, uh, well, it would be not Christian, if, especially if they go against the, the person believes against the resurrection of the dead. Let's say they're a professed public agnostic, they're a professed public atheist. Uh, then the spreading of the ashes doubly denounces the reality of the resurrection of the dead, and we surely don't want that to happen. So the best thing to do with your friend is to tell them, thank you so much that you are in one way honored that they ask you, because that involves trust to be in charge of the cremains once they've been cremated. You thank you for having been asked, but your faith, it's a good point of witness here, very charitably, very lovingly, your Catholic faith will not permit you to do so. And then witness about the benefits of, 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 uh, of having the ashes interred. Say, you know, even though the Church doesn't permit my Catholic faith doesn't permit the spreading of the ashes, the Catholic Church does permit the the entombment of the cremains or the burying of the cremains, and then talk about why that's the case, that the Church still permits cremation, it's just that the ashes can't be uh, uh, spread or or strewn about, right? Uh, But the Church does permit cremation, number one, and number two, the Church wants those cremains to be entombed in a columbarium above the ground or buried uh, in the ground, and it can even be, in some cases, certain cemeteries permit the cremains to be buried in the ground on top of a full-body grave in a casket that's already six feet or more under the earth. So let's say the husband uh, was full-body buried, but the wife uh, was cremated. It is possible that some cemeteries permit, according to county regulations, for for the urn to be buried. Uh, on top of the full-body casket. So there's different options here, but the whole purpose why we want to bury or entomb the cremains is because it shows belief in the reality of the resurrection from the dead, and that's the teaching that we want to get out there, because it's a divine revealed teaching, it's part of the doctrine of the faith, it's part of the sacred deposit of faith, and so uh, we want to promote that teaching, uh, which comes to us from sacred scripture, 
the magisterium and uh, sacred tradition? Th- a great question. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Next up is Chester in Houston, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Chester, you're on with Father Wade. Yeah, I got a question about uh, uh, the gladiators and the martyrs that were made during the Roman times. Mm-hmm. And do we have the right to defend ourselves against becoming martyrs? In other words, if somebody wants to cut off our head, do we have the right to stop that? You do, because the human person has an innate wantingness for self-preservation, the human person has an innate wantingness to not die, to not pass. This is why being a martyr is precisely, capital P, I might add, so heroic. It, it takes heroic virtue precisely because of the innate need we have for self-preservation, right? So the first response is to shield the attacker from attacking you, uh, say with a weapon or wh- whatever that might be. That's normative. What's not normative is to hand oneself over for martyrdom. Uh, what's natural is to self, want to self-preserve. That's what's natural. What's unnatural is to find yourself in, 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 to wanting to become a martyr. This is precisely what makes it such a heroic virtue in and of itself. So great, great question, um, especially as, as we tend towards Lent again, where we want to carry on practices, both positive and negative, positive meaning things that we want to do for Lent, negative meaning things that we want to give up for Lent, and both categories are good, by the way. Um, as we approach Lent and want to take on positives and negatives to strengthen our spiritual life, it's that strength in spiritual life, uh, Chester, that will one day hopefully give us the, um, the, the wantiness to be a martyr for the faith. So this is why Lent is so important. Um, even more so than Advent in this specific vein of strengthening the spiritual life toward toward a point of heroic virtue to one day, praise God, to have the grace to become a martyr and to die for the truth of the Catholic faith. God bless you, Chester. Great question. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Jackie in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Jackie, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, question my husband and I had this weekend after the second reading. There's a line that St. Paul refers to himself as being, as to one born abnormally, he appeared to me. It was 1 Corinthians 15, uh, yeah. 1 through 11. And we're just wondering why would he reference himself as being born ab- abnormally? Yeah, most of the Church Fathers uh, take that passage to mean his zealousness for the faith that he became so zealous for the Christian faith that it was abnormal compared to even the, the Christians who, who normatively began to follow Christ because they were taken in by his teaching. In other words, they didn't have any profound conversion. But with Paul, God dealt with in an abnormal way, um, you know, that he fell to the ground. He spoke to, to Paul through the clouds, why are you still persecuting me? Th- that was an abnormal way to get somebody's attention. And Paul says that he's been dealt with abnormally. He says, born abnormally, uh, up, 
precisely possibly for this particular point, because God knows all things from all time. Um, there's also reason to believe that that Paul could have been talking about something personal about him. Uh, we don't have any specifics in Scripture about maybe being born with a, a cleft foot or anything like that, or, or born with a hand not fully formed. We don't know anything about that. Paul doesn't reveal anything like that. Uh, so we just don't know specifics, but we do know that he was dealt with abnormally and that he intimates that God, who knows all things, um, would deal with him such, and so that's why he, he throws in the fact that he was born abnormally. In other words, he was one set apart for such a profound calling uh, from the time of his birth, knowing knowing as he would as, as a practicing Jew, the Old Testament scriptures, before, before you were born, I formed you in the womb. I knew you from the womb before you were born. So Paul knows that God knows the human person individually, intimately like that. And so in that sense, he was saying, I was born abnormally because God knew that he was going to call me to such a profound task. So there is no one set teaching on that. And again, add to the fact that we have the four senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the literal is just that, the literal taking the words at face value, which is what you and your husband are doing from the readings at Mass this week. But then uh, spiritually, we have the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical interpretations. That's number 165 of the Catechism. Thus, for a total of four senses of Scripture, uh, two parent categories, literal and spiritual, but four senses. The literal has the one itself, literal, and then the spiritual has the three, the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical. So take a look at that part of Scripture and, and understand where the Church is coming from with these different senses. Great question. Thank you so much. You know, if you've got a question about family, marriage, relationships, you can pose that question to Dr. Ray Garendi every day, Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. The Doctor is in with Dr. Ray Garendi right here on EWTN Radio. We still have time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Steve in Greeley, Colorado. He's listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Steve, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Wade. Yeah, thank you, Father Wade. Uh, yeah, I just tuned in and caught the last bit of your uh, conversation about uh, the scattering of ashes and church teaching, and I've always uh, known or, and understood that, I thought, until... Um, I really got to thinking, how come the Church believes it's okay to uh, disseminate and divide up and split up the remains of our saints and uh, scatter them around the world to venerate them? Uh, and how different is that than uh, doing that with ashes for people um, in different uh, pendants or trinkets or glass catchers or sun sure. catchers or whatnot? Yeah, great question. With the spreading of ashes, there's no more remembrance of the person. Uh, that's going to be it. Uh, there, there, we're, it's a denial of the reality that we want to remember them on their death day. We want to remember them on their birthday. We want to go pray, get, take mom flowers on her birthday. We want to go take mom flowers at her grave, you know, say a full-body burial, for example, on her and dad's anniversary day. Or dad himself will go take uh, flowers on he and mom's anniversary day to mom's grave. There's a remembrance factor there, which the relics also help prosper. But with the spreading of ashes, the person, you know, psychologically may not be soon forgotten, but the remembrance and the dignity and the innate reality of the dignity of the human person made in God's image and likeness is lost. Where with relics, it's precisely because we re believe in the resurrection. We believe this person is in heaven, provided the, the relics are of a saint that's formally canonized, 
or even if the relics are of someone who's formally beatified, they're declared blessed in the church, or even if they're servant of God or declared venerable, their cause has been at least introduced for what will hopefully be ultimately canonization as a member of the church triumphant declared by the authority of the church to the merits won by Christ from the cross and his paschal mystery on that first Good Friday, the passion, death, resurrection, and resurrection from the dead, and also his ascension into heaven 40 days after Easter. We celebrate the Paschal mystery in the person's individual life precisely because they're a saint, precisely because they're a blessed, precisely because they're servant of God or venerable on their way to being canonized and declared in heaven. So there's regulations of holding those relics. Number one, they have to be authenticated by the church. Uh, Number two, they have to be in a place of honor. They have to be in a reliquary of honor. So it's actually giving a greater dignity to the person than when we full body bury them or we bury the cremains because they are an exemplar of how they live their life according to what? According to heroic virtue. Okay, it's something to look forward to to help us on our own journey to heaven. It's like St. Paul says, he says, you know, athletes, especially, you know, Super Bowl coming up, right? Uh, Athletes deny themselves all sorts of things, do they not, St. Paul says? And for what? To win a crown of leaves that withers after three days? But we Christians, a crown that remains absolutely imperishable. And the veneration, not worship, but veneration of the person by way of their relics, we don't venerate the relic per se, the bone chip or anything like that, or the lock of hair, Um, that would be paganistic. We venerate the person by honoring the relic of their personage. Uh, And then a second-class relic would be, for example, a a, a piece of cloth from their habit, if they were a a religious order saint, for example. And a third-class relic is 100% cloth, uh, wool, or cotton, touched to a first-class relic. That becomes a third-class relic. So it's through the first-class, second-class, and third-class relics of these varying degrees that we're honoring the person as an exemplar who lived to a heroic degree of virtue and whose cause has been introduced, or indeed they have already been declared blessed by the authority of the Church, or they've been declared a saint by the Church. So there's a huge, huge difference. What about Uh, the the situation where ashes are placed in a pendant or something like that? Of of the person whose cause has been introduced? No, 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 no. Uh, The the ashes of a loved one being placed in, in, you know, some sort of piece of jewelry or something. Yeah, that would be very wrong. That would be very wrong. Uh, We want to keep the ashes together just like we want to keep the full body together and have a proper internment of the ashes, either an above-ground columbarium, which uh, now it's beautiful to see. Uh, Jack, I think you said that you've seen this, too, in the Birmingham area. Uh, If I remember right, one Open Line Tuesday, uh, some parishes there in the area have above-ground columbariums. Mm-hmm. with the beautiful marble facades and whatnot, or or at an actual cemetery, uh, maybe the cemetery is tied to a parish, maybe not, it could be a county cemetery, uh, that that the that the the urn with the ashes is buried uh, in the ground. So those beautiful options there. Beautiful. Thanks, Steve. We appreciate the call. We'll head to Maureen now, also in the great state of Colorado, listening on the EWTN app. Maureen, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just have a quick question. My granddaughter is preparing for confirmation, and uh, she will get it this year, and then next year, I guess as a fifth grader, she'll get her Holy Eucharist. She has a cousin in Minnesota that got to have her first communion in second grade, like is more traditional, and she will be confirmed in, like, in fifth or sixth grade. Oh, and my question for so happy to hear this. I'm so happy to hear this. Go ahead, finish your question. I'll explain it gladly, gladly, gladly. (laughs) Okay. 
Well, I was kind of reading through the New Testament, and Jesus at the Last Supper, he said, eat my body and drink my blood with his apostles at the Last Supper when he gave them his flesh and his blood. And then, but he didn't send the Holy Spirit until after his ascension. So I just was wondering why my granddaughter can't get her first communion in this area and then her confirmation. So I'm confused, I guess. Yeah, great question. So first of all, the Eastern Rite Catholic churches in union with Rome, who acknowledge the papacy, keep in mind that they do baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist all at one time as an infant, okay? So all three sacraments of initiation, there's three sacraments of initiation, baptism, Holy Eucharist, and confirmation, two sacraments of union, matrimony, and holy orders, and of course two sacraments of healing, confession, and the anointing of the sick. So in the Eastern Rite Catholic churches, I believe there's 23 rites total, uh, they they the most of them give the the uh, first co- the baptism first communion and confirmation what they call chrismation all at the same time like the Byzantine rite they call it they call the the chrismation the the, the confirmation um, so now in the Western Latin rite we're seeing some bishops who believe and I believe rightly so that the young person needs the graces of confirmation before they enter middle school, which in this country is usually 6th or 7th grade, usually 7th grade, but some middle schools have 6th graders included. It's a, it's a three-grade middle school. So the elementary school would go preschool through 5th, and then middle school 6th through 8th, and then high school ninth through 12th. But some middle schools are just 7th and 8th. Regardless, by the time they enter the 6th grade, 5th grade, even 4th grade, and you're seeing bishops now offering confirmation, confirmation earlier on when the standard norm in this country for decades following Vatican II was to give confirmation in 8th grade or in ninth grade or 10th grade once they're in high school. I myself was confirmed in the 8th grade and received First Holy Communion and First Reconciliation at the age of reason in 2nd grade at the age of 7. But I think it's a good thing that bishops are now starting to give confirmation early so that they can have those graces of that sacrament by the time they enter middle school. Great question. Thank you so much. Uh, Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until we get together then, God bless.